The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello. In 1886, an Austrian psychiatrist named Richard von Kraft Ebbing a contemporary of Sigmund Freud, published his foundational study of human sexuality, Psychopathia Sexualis. In that book, he categorized sexual behavior and included case studies. In subsequent editions, the case studies numbered in the hundreds. Among these patterns of behavior were two that involved violence, which Kraft Ebbing named after authors. There was the obtaining of sexual pleasure by receiving pain or humiliation, which Kraft Ebbing named masochism, after a now-forgotten 19th-century Austrian author named Leopold von Sacher Masoch, who not only wrote stories about this type of pleasure, he was known to seek it out in his daily life. And then there was the obtaining of sexual pleasure not by receiving pain or humiliation, but by doling it out. And for that... There was only one real choice, the infamous Frenchman known as the Marquis de Sade. And with that, voila, the word sadism entered our vocabulary. It's a refined term, sadomasochism, both clinical and, in its shorthand, S&M, useful. Kraft Ebbing deliberately aimed his work at the specialist and not the lay reader. He gave it a Latin title to try to discourage the scurrilous and merely curious. But while sadomasochism has been the subject of psychiatric evaluation, with official opinion drifting from perceived disorder to order in the right circumstances over the past century and a half, the shorthand S&M has never been more popular. A Google search for Are You Into S&M turns up almost 14 billion hits. And if you're searching from a work computer, it also turns up a visit from your friendly neighborhood HR representative. We understand sadism better now. We probably understand it better than we understand Saad himself. In spite of the hundreds of thousands of words that he left behind, in spite of the many historical accounts, in spite of the trials he was subjected to, he remains something of a puzzle. Is he a free speech avatar, ascending to heaven on First Amendment wings, or a depraved moral monster, dwelling somewhere in the rings of hell down there with Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer? The Encyclopedia Britannica dutifully considers his career before throwing up its encyclopedic hands. Quote, As an author, Desaad is to some an incarnation of absolute evil who advocates the unleashing of instincts even to the point of crime. Others have looked upon him as a champion of total liberation through the satisfaction of his desires in all forms. Today, Desaad's writings can be more comfortably categorized. They belong to the history of ideas and mark an important moment in the history of literature. End quote. An important moment in the history of literature. And here we are with a podcast devoted to just such moments. 
No need to overthink this. No need to beat ourselves up about it or beat up others. As the case may be, the Marquis de Sade, his notorious works, and even more notorious life, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. This is an unavoidably disturbing topic, so listeners, please take caution. The Marquis de Sade, we'll get to this, but let's just say that consent was not his forte. We're actually going to be two episodes on Sade this week, this one today, to discuss his life and works. With one exception, which is the notorious manuscript known as the 120 Days of Sodom, which Saad wrote when he was in the Bastille, which was then stormed, leading Saad to believe the manuscript had been lost. He wept tears of blood at the loss, he said. But we won't talk about that too much today, because on Thursday we'll be joined by Joel Warner, author of a new book, the Curse of the Marquis de Sade, a notorious scoundrel, a mythical manuscript, and the biggest scandal in literary history, which tells the entire story of that manuscript, which is both a French national treasure and a book that people claim has almost supernaturally evil properties. So, here we go. Usually we start with the life and lead to the literature and end with the legacy, but I think it makes sense in the case of Saad, to spend some time with the legacy first. I have two main points I want to make. Yes, he's famous. We've named a word after him. He's everywhere in pop culture. He's been influential to writers and to thinkers and to psychiatric experts and sexologists and all that stuff. But I have two main points. And for the first one, I'm going to read a passage from Saad and see if you can get to where I'm going. This is erotic, so again, listeners, please beware. This is from the book Justine, or The Misfortunes of Virtue. There are really four works by Saad that are worth talking about, I think. Four novels, I should say. He also wrote plays and short stories and some essays. But this was the age of the novel, where novels were teaching us all how to live inside another's head. It's been said that novel writing taught empathy, if you want to use that word, that it developed this sense in us of seeing the world from another point of view, living with the motives that made people do what they do, and, and in giving this us this understanding for one another, it made novels made us as a society more tolerant and less antagonistic, even less violent. Maybe that's why there was such a moral crusade to keep novels virtuous and to condemn the unholy, People saw what a powerful tool these things were, especially because they were so popular and so all-encompassing. Imagine social media or the smartphone today. In those days, novels held that kind of place. Popular all of a sudden and immersive. Young people with their noses in books. And for the most part, looking back, it was all positive if we were to believe the Stephen Pinkers of the world who view them as helping us all get a little bit more understanding and compassionate and to reduce the violence that we inflict upon one another. Well, 
Sad is the flip side of this, maybe. Sad, one might argue, puts foul ideas in our head. It's right there in the subtitle. The misfortunes of virtue. Not the rewards of virtue, or the pleasures of virtue, or, or the virtuous uh, emerges triumphant. The misfortunes. Now, maybe you could say, well, aren't you missing the point, Jack? The point is that Saad is describing the world as it actually is. Not some namby-pamby world that a moralist dreams into life. He's saying the misfortunes of virtue because he's a realist. He sees that in this corrupted world, virtue is punished. All those 18th and 19th century do-gooders, and are the, they're the pacifists and the doves, hoping that the world will come to its senses. And Saad is real politique. Let's hear a passage so you can get a flavor of this and so you can hear the prose and the approach to sexual activity that Saad takes. Again, this comes from the novel Justine. This was written in 1791, just after the French Revolution, and it's the story of a young woman from the years just before the French Revolution. I say young woman, but really she's a girl at the start of the book. We follow her from age 12 to age 26. Unlike her sister Juliette, who will eventually be the subject of a follow-up novel, Justine is sweet and virtuous. Actually, this is going to take a while. So let's take a quick break and then come back with some key passages from Justine. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We're about to hear from the book Justine or The Misfortunes of Virtue by the Marquis de Sade. Justine has been traveling across France, falling into unfortunate situations everywhere she goes. She goes to a monastery hoping to be helped, and the monks there turn her into their sex slave. It's a very uh, Sade-like twist. She helps a count who promises to help her, but he basically does the same thing, abusing her, making her help him in the abuse of his wife, and eventually confining Justine to a cave. She meets various criminals who don't help her either. She tries to help them uh, and help their victims, and finally she winds up in prison, falsely accused of theft. To break out, another criminal she's allied with starts a fire, and 21 people are killed. The book is told as a kind of confession or a plea for mercy, told to a woman in an inn who turns out to be Justine's long-lost sister. Now, hold that thought. Here's a passage where Justine is working for the Count. The Count has to indoctrinate her first, and then he's going to use her as a helpmate in his predations on his wife. He holds Justine, who goes by the name Therese throughout the book, in a room and has her arms tied by straps above her. He's been asking how often she's been bled in the medical sense. The medieval-like practice of bleeding is stimulating for him. Here she is, her arms tied in straps. He arrives, accompanied by two of his young male servants. No sooner have I assumed the posture than the Count steps up, scalpel in hand. He can scarcely breathe. His eyes are alive with sparks. His face smites me with terror. He ties bands about both my arms, and in a flash he has lanced each of them. A cry bursts from between his teeth. It is accompanied by two or three blasphemies when he catches sight of my blood. He retires to a distance of six feet and sits down. The light garment covering him is soon deployed. Zephyr kneels between his thighs and sucks him. Narcisse, his feet planted on his master's armchair, presents the same object to him to suckle. He is himself having drained by Zephyr. Jernon gets his hands upon the boy's loins, squeezes them, presses them to him, but quits them long enough to cast his inflamed eyes toward me. My blood is escaping in floods and is falling into two white basins situated underneath my arms. I soon feel myself growing faint. Monsieur, monsieur, I cry, have pity on me. I am about to collapse. I sway, totter, am held up by the straps and am unable to fall. But my arms having shifted and my head slumping upon my shoulder, my face is now washed with blood. The Count is drunk with joy. However, I see nothing like the end of his operation approaching. I swoon before he reaches his goal. He was perhaps only able to attain it upon seeing me in this state. Perhaps his supreme ecstasy depended upon this morbid picture. At any rate, when I returned to my senses, I found myself in an excellent bed, with two old women standing near me. As soon as they saw me open my eyes, they brought me a cup of bouillon, and, at three-hour intervals, rich broths. This continued for two days, 
at the end of which Monsieur de Gernon sent to have me get up and come for a conversation in the same salon where I had been received upon my arrival. I was led to him. I was still a little weak and giddy, but otherwise, well, I arrived. Therese, said the Count, bidding me be seated, I shall not very often repeat such exercises with you. Your person is useful for other purposes. But it was of the highest importance I acquaint you with my tastes, and the manner in which you will expire in this house, should you betray me one of these days, should you be unlucky enough to let yourself be suborned by the woman in whose society you are going to be placed. That woman belongs to me, Therese. She is my wife, and that title is doubtless the most baleful she could have, since it obliges her to lend herself to the bizarre passion whereof you have been a recent victim. Do not suppose it is vengeance that prompts me to treat her thus, scorn or any sentiment of hostility or hatred. It is merely a question of passion. Nothing equals the pleasure I experience upon shedding her blood. I go mad when it flows. I have never enjoyed this woman in any other fashion. Three years have gone by since I married her, and for three years she has been regularly exposed every four days to the treatment you have undergone. Her youth, she is not yet twenty, the special care given her, all this keeps her aright, and as the reservoir is replenished at the same rate it is tapped, she has been in fairly good health since the regime began. Our relations being what they are, you perfectly well appreciate why I can neither allow her to go out nor to receive visitors. And so I represent her as insane, and her mother, the only living member of her family, who resides in a chateau six leagues from here, is so firmly convinced of her derangement that she dares not even come to see her. Not infrequently, the Countess implores my mercy. There is nothing she omits to do in order to soften me, but I doubt whether she shall ever succeed. My lust decreed her fate. It is immutable. She will go on in this fashion so long as she is able. While she lives, she will want nothing, and as I am incredibly fond of what can be drained from her living body, I will keep her alive as long as possible. When finally she can stand it no more, well, tush, nature will take its course. She's my fourth. I'll soon have a fifth. Nothing disturbs me less than to lose a wife. There are so many women about, and it is so pleasant to change. Hmm. End quote. The Count goes on to give some instructions to Therese for how she is to help him ravage his wife. She meets the wife, who, and she's struck by her beauty, and she secretly plans to undermine the Count if she can and help the wife. She gives the wife some assurances, which delights the Count... Because he's thinking, yes, yes, that's good, Therese. Keep her happy and hopeful by all means. Good job. And then they eat a fine dinner. And the next day is going to be the routine. Back to the book. After the meal, she went for some air on the terrace. But upon rising, she took my arm. For she was quite unable to take ten steps without someone to lean upon. It was at this moment she showed me all those parts of her body I have just described to you. She exhibited her arms. They were covered with small scars. Ah, he does not confine himself to that, she said. There is not a single spot on my wretched person 
whence he does not love to see blood flow. And she allowed me to see her feet, her neck, the lower part of her breasts, and several other fleshy areas equally speckled with healed punctures. At this, the Count's wife tells Therese that she's ready to die and ascend to heaven. In the arms of the Supreme Being, she says, I will seek a place of rest that men have so cruelly denied me on earth. And then it's time for the ritual. Back to the book. Two young boys I had not hitherto seen, and who were of the same age as the others, were awaiting at the door of the Countess's apartment. It was then the Count informed me he had twelve minions and renewed them every year. These seemed yet prettier than the ones I had seen hitherto. They were livelier. We went in. All the ceremonies I am going to describe now, madam, were part of a ritual from which the Count never deviated. They were scrupulously observed upon each occasion, and nothing ever changed except the place where the incisions were made. The Countess, dressed only in a loose-floating muslin robe, fell to her knees instantly the Count entered. "'Are you ready?' her husband inquired. "'For everything, monsieur,' was the humble reply. "'You know full well I am your victim, and you have but to command me.' Monsieur de Gernand thereupon told me to undress his wife and lead her to him. Whatever the loathing I sensed for all these horrors, you understand, madam, I had no choice but to submit with the most entire resignation. In all I have still to tell you, do not, I beseech you, do not at any time regard me as anything but a slave. I complied simply because I could not do otherwise. But never did I act willingly in anything whatsoever." I removed my mistress's samar, and when she was naked, conducted her to her husband, who had already taken his place in a large armchair. As part of the ritual, she perched upon this armchair, and herself presented to his kisses that favorite part over which he had made such a to-do with me, and which, regardless of person or sex, seemed to affect him in the same way. "'And now spread them, madam,' the Count said brutally." and for a long time he rollicked about with what he enjoyed the sight of. He had it assume various positions, he opened it, he snapped it shut, with tongue and fingertip he tickled the narrow aperture, and soon, carried away by his passion's ferocity, he plucked up a pinch of flesh, squeezed it, scratched it. Immediately he produced a small wound, he fastened his mouth to the spot. I held his unhappy victim during these preliminaries, the two boys, completely naked, toiled upon him in relays. Now one, now the other, knelt between Jernan's thighs and employed his mouth to excite him. It was then I noticed, not without astonishment, that this giant, this species of monster whose aspect alone was enough to strike terror, was, howbeit barely a man, the most meager, the most minuscule excrescence of flesh, or to make a juster comparison, what one might find in a child of three was all one discovered upon this so very enormous and otherwise so corpulent individual. But its sensations were not for that the less keen, and each pleasurable vibration was as a spasmodic attack. After this prologue, he stretched out upon a couch and wanted his wife, seated astride his chest, 
to keep her behind poised over his visage, while with her mouth she rendered him, by means of suckings, the same service he had just received from the youthful Ganymedes, who were simultaneously, one to the left, one to the right, being excited by him. My hands, meanwhile, worked upon his behind. I titillated it, I polluted it in every sense. This phase of activities lasted more than a quarter of an hour, but, producing no results, had to be given up for another. Upon her husband's instructions, I stretched the countess upon a chaise lounge. She lay on her back, her legs spread as wide as possible. The sight of what she exposed put her husband in a kind of rage. He dwelt upon the perspective. His eyes blaze, he curses. Like one crazed, he leaps upon his wife. With his scalpel, pricks her in several places. But these were all superficial gashes. A drop or two of blood, no more, seeped from each. These minor cruelties came to an end at last. Others began. The Count sits down again. He allows his wife a moment's respite and, turning his attention to his two little followers, he now obliges them to suck each other, and now he arranges them in such a way that while he sucks one, the other sucks him, and now again the one he sucked first brings round his mouth to render the same service to him by whom he was sucked. The Count received much, but gave little. Such was his satiety, such his impotence, that the extremest efforts availed not at all, and he remained in his torpor. He did indeed seem to experience some very violent reverberations, but nothing manifested itself. He several times ordered me to suck his little friends and immediately to convey to his mouth whatever incense I drained from them. Finally, he flung them one after the other at the miserable countess. These young men accosted her, insulted her, carried insolence to the point of beating her, slapping her, and the more they molested her, the more loudly the count praised and egged them on. End quote. That's the end of the chapter. What is going on here, people? What jumps out at you when you hear that? Maybe it's the obscenity, the relentless sexuality, but actually, this is one of Saad's less obscene works. It's not him at his most extreme. It's still pretty shocking, nevertheless. You can see why Napoleon was not flattered when Saad sent him a copy, and in fact, he had Saad arrested. What strikes the modern reader is that there's no consent. There's not even a nod to it. S&M, sadomasochism. We've accepted that this is a not unhealthy feature of sexuality, that some people like to receive pain and some people like to dole it out, that there can be pleasure in that, and it's not a cause for shame. It's not viewed today as a perversion or deviancy. It's allowable in our modern thinking. Two people can willingly engage in it for pleasure with safe words and agreements and all of that. It's a tool in pleasure's toolbox, but only if there's consent. It's not okay to force it upon someone. In Saad's world, you do force it if you're the count. Not only does he force it upon his wife, he forces his servants and Therese to endure his predations. He, endure, he forces Therese to do it as sort of a preparation for her real job, which is to help him abuse his wife. And again, he forces her into this. Let's go back to the book. 
Then Jernand turned to me. I was in front of him, my buttocks at the level of his face, and he paid his respects to his God. But he did not abuse me, nor do I know why he did not torment his Ganymedes. He chose to reserve all his unkindness for the Countess. Perhaps the honor of being allied to him established one's right to suffer mistreatment at his hands. Perhaps he was moved to cruelty only by attachments which contributed energy to his outrages. One can imagine anything about such minds, and almost always safely wager that what seems most apt to be criminal is what will inflame them most. At last he places his young friends and me beside his wife, and enlaces our bodies, here a man, there a woman, etc., all four dressing their behinds. He takes his stand some distance away and muses upon the panorama. Then he comes near, touches, feels, compares, caresses. The youths and I were not persecuted, but each time he came to his wife, he fussed and bothered and vexed her in some way or other. Again the scene changes. He has the countess lie belly down upon a divan, and taking each boy in turn, he introduces each of them into the narrow avenue Madame's posture exposes. He allows them to become aroused, but it is nowhere but in his mouth the sacrifice is to be consummated. As one after another they emerge, he sucks each. While one acts, he has himself sucked by the other, and his tongue wanders to the throne of voluptuousness the agent presents to him. This activity continues a long time. It irritates the Count. He gets to his feet and wishes me to take the Countess's place. I instantly beg him not to require it of me, but he insists. He lays his wife upon her back, has me superimpose myself upon her with my flanks raised in his direction, and thereupon he orders his aides to plumb me by the forbidden passage. He brings them up, his hands guide their introduction, Meanwhile, I have got to stimulate the countess with my fingers and kiss her mouth. As for the count, his offertory is still the same, as each of the boys cannot act without exhibiting to him one of the sweetest objects of his veneration. He turns it all to his profit, and as with the countess, he who has just perforated me is obliged to go, after a few lunges and retreats, and spill into his mouth the incense I have warmed. When the boys are finished, Seemingly inclined to replace them, the Count glues himself to my buttocks. Superfluous efforts, he cries. This is not what I must have. To the business, the business. However pitiable my state, I can hold back no longer. Come, Countess, your arms. He seizes her ferociously, places her as I was placed, arms suspended by two black straps. Mine is the task of securing the bands. He inspects the knots. Finding them too loose, he tightens them, so that, he says, the blood will spurt out under greater pressure. He feels the veins and lances them on each arm at almost the same moment. Blood leaps far. He is in an ecstasy, and adjusting himself so that he has a clear view of these two fountains, he has me kneel between his legs so I can suck him. He does as much for first one and then the other of his little friends, incessantly eyeing the jets of blood which inflame him. For my part, certain the instant at which the hoped-for crisis occurs will bring a conclusion to the Countess's torments, I bring all my efforts to bear upon precipitating this denouement. And as I, and I become, as, madam, you observe, I become a whore from kindness, a libertine through virtue. 
The much-awaited moment arrives at last. I am not familiar with its dangers or violence. For the last time it had taken place, I had been unconscious. Oh, madam, what extravagance! Jernand remained delirious for ten minutes, flailing his arms, staggering, reeling like one falling in a fit of epilepsy, and uttering screams which must have been audible for a league around. His oaths were excessive, lashing out at everyone at hand. His strugglings were dreadful. The two little ones are sent tumbling head over heels. He wishes to fly at his wife. I restrain him. I pump the last drop from him. His need of me makes me makes him respect me. At last, I bring him to his senses by ridding him of that fiery liquid, whose heat, whose viscosity, and above all, whose abundance puts him in such a frenzy I believe he is going to expire. Seven or eight tablespoons would scarcely have contained the discharge, and the thickest gruel would hardly give a notion of its consistency, and with all that, no appearance of an erection at all. Rather, the limp look and feel of exhaustion. There you have the contrarieties, which, better than might I, explain artists of the Count's breed. That's the end of the passage. Later, Therese implores the Count to go easier on his wife, and the Count delivers his view of the situation. One morning, Jernand called me to his room to inform me of some new libertine schemes. After having listened closely and approved enthusiastically, and seeing him in a relatively calm state, I undertook to persuade him to mitigate his poor wife's fate. "'Is it possible, monsieur,' I said to him, "'that one may treat a woman in this manner, even setting aside all the ties which bind you to her? Condescend to reflect upon her sex's touching graces.' "'Oh, Therese!' The Count answered with alacrity. Why, in order to pacify me, do you bring me arguments which could not more positively arouse me? Listen to me, my dear girl, he continued, having me take a place beside him, and whatever the invectives you may hear me utter against your sex, don't lose your temper. No, a reasoned discussion. I'll yield to your arguments if they're logically sound. How are you justified? Pray tell me, Therese, in asserting that a husband lies under the obligation to make his wife happy. And what titles dares this woman cite in order to extort this happiness from her husband? The necessity mutually to render one another happy cannot legitimately exist, save between two persons equally furnished with the capacity to do one another hurt, and, consequently, between two persons of commensurate strength. Such an association can never come into being unless a contract is immediately formed between these two persons, which obligates each to employ against the other no kind of force, but what will not be injurious to either. But this ridiculous convention assuredly can never obtain between two persons, one of whom is strong and the other weak. What entitles the latter to require the former to treat kindly with him? And what sort of a fool would the stronger have to be in order to subscribe to such an agreement? I can agree not to employ force against him whose own strength makes him to be feared, but what could motivate me to moderate the effects of my strength upon the being that nature subordinates to me? Pity, do you say? That sentiment is fitting for no one but the person who resembles me, and as he is an egoist too. Pity's effects only occur under the tacit circumstances in which the individual who inspires my commiseration has sympathy for me in his turn. 
But if my superiority assures me a constant ascendancy over him, his sympathy becoming valueless to me, I need never, in order to excite it, consent to any sacrifice. Would I not be a fool to feel pity for the chicken they slaughtered for my dinner? That object, too inferior to me, lacking any relation to me, can never excite any feelings in me. Well, the relationships of a wife to her husband and that of the chicken to myself are of identical consequence. The one and the other are household chattels which one must use, which one must employ for the purpose indicated by nature, without any differentiation whatsoever. But, I ask, had it been nature's intention to create your sex for the happiness of ours and vice versa, would this blind nature have caused the existence of so many ineptitudes in the construction of the one and the other of those sexes? Would she have implanted faults so grave in each that mutual estrangement and antipathy were bound infallibly to be their result? Without going any further in search of examples, be so good as to tell me, Therese, Knowing my organization to be what it is, what woman could I render happy? And, reversibly, to what man can the enjoyment of a woman be sweet when he is not endowed with the gigantic proportions necessary to satisfy her? End quote. He goes on and on, page after page, calling women beasts that one stables in the barn and puts to use when the need arises, arguing that it's natural. It's logical. It's the state of the world. It's his need. It's his desires. There's a sense that it's his right as a stronger being to subjugate the lesser bodies to serve him and his pleasure. For us, this sounds monstrous. And it sounds like some justification of what we would call unjustifiable. It's hard to read. One wants to throw the book at the wall as we search in vain for the author to come to grips with this simple truth. You can take this view that the Count takes, but you can't justify it. He's a monster. Saad doesn't reward the virtuous or wink at the reader to show that he gets it, that it's an unfair position to say, what's good for me is not good for thee. One wants to see the Count held in a barn and forced to learn his lesson. Instead, that sister I told you about, who hears the tale, turns out to have taken a different approach. She was faced with a similar dilemma, and she submitted to a world of vice, and things all worked out for her. Justine, meanwhile, the virtuous one, refuses to go down that path, and her fate is to be struck by a lightning bolt and killed. Saad is not exactly subtle. So that's point one. Saad has a huge hole in his conception of sexuality and the relationship of pain to pleasure. One man, an individual, I could say, but in Saad's worldview, it's a man, and in fact, it's pretty much him. One man has the right to seize pleasure by inflicting pain. The victims deserve it because they are weaker, and if they know what's good for them, they will just submit to this reality. That part of Saad's legacy is that he's uh, often been reviled for this, and rightly so. He's been attacked by feminists, and rightly so. What kind of a stance is it to say that women are barn animals there to service his needs? It's impossible to defend that position. But we're coming to the second point I want to make about Saad's legacy, which is that he has defenders as well, and I think we should understand why. 
And not just these aren't just misogynists either. Simone de Beauvoir was one. The flip side of Saad getting consent wrong is that you can identify and isolate the thing that he gets wrong. This is literature. It's for us to debate. It's not a courtroom trial of Saad himself. We can view a position as an opening salvo. Saad makes his case. We point out the lack of consent. We win the day. But Saad's opening salvo contains something valuable. There's a pleasure, a sexual pleasure in the infliction of pain that some people feel. Saad didn't invent this. He felt it. And he was not the first or the last to do so. And by putting this extreme out there, he paved the way for people who felt that way, or people who never did, to understand those feelings, to discuss them, to consider them, to study them. We can be grown-ups and say, well, Saad isn't 100% correct, but Saad plus the notion of consent isn't so bad. Maybe there are still a few objectionable things in there, even if we had consent, but there's also some truth that we can get at too. Which brings me to the second main point about his legacy. When you read Saad's critics and you read his defenders, often what you're talking about is not someone who is responding directly to Saad. They're responding to someone else's response to Saad. Simone de Beauvoir's primary essay is called Must We Burn Saad? It reminds me of the position a lot of people on the left came around to with the Clinton impeachment. The first reaction was, oh my God, he was doing that with an intern in the Oval Office. That's, that's maybe not illegal, and thank God there was consent there. But it's a workplace problem. Bosses and interns, that's not a good dynamic. And it's foolish, and it's thoughtless, and selfish, and unpresidential. And he's created this big distraction for the country. Hope he resigns. Al Gore's plenty capable of doing a decent job as president. That was the early thinking. And then impeachment begins, and it becomes, well, look at these hypocrites with their sanctimonious pieties. They're all louts and crooks, too. And here's one leader who's railing against Clinton and talking up the sanctity of marriage, and he's been divorced three times. And here's another one who's railing about sin, and there's something creepy about him, and he ends up in jail as a serial child molester. And by the time all these opinions are out there over and over, night after night of listening to this hypocrisy, you start to think, well, the people voted for this guy twice. They're pleased with the job he's doing. And why should these holy roller hypocrites throw him out? Okay, maybe he was wrong, but maybe he shouldn't be impeached. Notice that that position, maybe he's wrong, but maybe he shouldn't be impeached. The position of he shouldn't be impeached has nothing to do with what Clinton did other than to say, well, there's some good in there with the bad, and the bad isn't as bad as it's being made out to be by these people who say now that we can't talk about the president at the dinner table and all of that nonsense. Jerry Seinfeld comes along and says, yeah, Clinton lied about sex. Everyone lies about sex. They lie during sex. And we think, yeah, yeah, maybe we should be a little more realistic about sexual practices among consenting adults. Maybe we should be more like the French. We say they get their, they, they understand that their leaders sometimes have affairs. They're grown ups about it. So back to Saad. Must we burn 
Saad. You can hear Simone de Beauvoir addressing critics who say, yes, we should, oh, Saad, we should burn these books. And she says, well, why? Why? Must we burn them? Can't we recognize them for what they are, exposing some portion of humanity, for better or worse, which we are then free to discuss and debate and disparage? But isn't there more value in having that dialogue than in watching pages go up in smoke? The world doesn't need more judgments, and it doesn't need more ashes. And some say, look at how brave Saad was risking censorship for literature, for art. And what they're saying when they say that is, well, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on Saad's writings. I don't even have an opinion on them, or maybe I do, but my opinion is outweighed right now by my opinion on censorship, which I am strongly against. That's like the people who say, well, I don't have an opinion on Clinton's peccadilloes, or I do. I don't like the intern aspect of it, but... All that is outweighed by my position on the impeaching of a popular president for consensual sexual indiscretions, or my, all that is outweighed by my position on sexual hypocrisy, or my position on overturning the elected will of the people, or, or my position on the morality police, or however you want to frame it. In Saad's case, you say, well, his books shouldn't have been banned, they shouldn't be burned, and Saad, the author, shouldn't be thrown in jail, which he was, though we'll see in a moment that was probably the right place for him. But he wasn't thrown in jail. Well, he committed crimes. That's why he belonged there. But some of the crimes he committed, the ones his defenders highlight, are ones that we wouldn't consider a crime today. Blasphemy, for example. Imagine going to jail for blasphemy. Well, let's take our last break, and then we'll hear who exactly Saad was and what he did, and how he wound up in the Bastille. Saad's life was stormy from the beginning, stormy and privileged both. He was born in 1740. His father was a count, his mother a cousin, and lady-in-waiting to a princess. Saad had no brothers and sisters. He was the only one who survived. His father abandoned the family early on. Saad was given to bursts of temper that the servants who were raising him indulged, which only made the boy more spoiled and demanding. His mother then left him too. She joined a convent. He beat up one of his playmates, who happened to be a prince, and was sent to live with his mother's brother, who, quote, introduced him to debauchery. End quote. At 10, he was sent to a Jesuit college where he was beaten severely, flagellated, which obsessed him for the rest of his life. He joined the military and fought in the Seven Years' War, became the colonel of a regiment. He was wealthy, and he married a rich woman. They lived in a castle, and then his legal troubles began. He had gotten married in May of 1763. By October, he was being prosecuted. He had picked up a local prostitute, demanded anal sex from her, and when she refused, he locked her in a room and demanded to know whether she believed in God. She said she did. This sent him into a rage. Later, she testified that he screamed that there was no God. He stomped on a crucifix, masturbated into a church chalice, masturbated with a crucifix, 
screaming obscenities about Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and held a sword over her head to force her to stomp on a crucifix while repeating, quote, Bastard, I don't give a fuck about you. He also made her beat him with a cane whip and an iron whip that had been heated in fire. He recited blasphemous poems all night. The whole ordeal lasted 12 hours. It's a little unhinged, to say the least. She finally got away, and he was arrested and held in prison for a couple of weeks. He then wrote some apologetic letters and was ordered to be released by the king. What was... Ah, we... How tightly wound was the Marquis de Sade when it came to religion? What was this coming from? Was it because the society was truly that oppressive and that the religious authority was was there to be rebelled against? Is that what triggered him? Was it because his mother left him and went to a convent when he was a boy? Is it because of these, these Jesuits who beat him? What was it? What was it that made him say not just, well, I don't believe in God, Maybe I'll write an essay about it. Maybe I'll chat with some friends about it over dinner. What was it that, that put him into this 12-hour rage where he was forcing another to watch him do all this, to listen to all this, and to say these things herself? It was released by the king, but that was not the end of his troubles. You can see where a man like this is is headed for disasters. Months later, he was back in action. He became notorious. The local police in Paris told Madams not to send prostitutes out to his country castle. The police had him under surveillance with the feeling that more violence, death was sure to come, and the crimes piled up. He hired a German woman to come and clean his house, and then he locked her up, bound her, whipped her, and poured hot wax into the wounds and made her clean the bloodstains from her own gown. He was put in prison again. A few years later, he was again arrested. After he had gotten out of prison, he hired four prostitutes anally raped them, drugged them with chocolates laced with an aphrodisiac. He was now a prisoner and or a fugitive from justice, which he would remain the rest of his life. His wife sometimes helped him with his exploits. His mother-in-law sometimes helped the authorities find him and lock him up. He had orgies, men, boys, women, girls. It included kidnappings and rapes. A father showed up and fired a pistol at him, hoping to end the demon's life, but the gun misfired. Then came the Bastille and the French Revolution. In spite of being an aristocrat, he was elected in the post-revolution period to the National Assembly. He called for certain reforms. Naturally, he wanted free public brothels. And then he began publishing novels, a few of them anonymously. Although eventually it became learned that they were by him. Earlier I mentioned that there were four novels worth noting. We heard from Justine, or The Misfortunes of Virtue, which was published in 1791. Another, Juliet, or Vice Amply Rewarded, was published later that decade. More erotic scenes mixed with Saad's views on theology and morality and so on. Juliet 
as I mentioned, isn't like Justine. Justine was a virtuous woman made miserable by her encounters with vice. Juliet was an amoral nymphomaniac who found success and happiness. You can hear Saad saying, You see, you people, if only you would be like me and live for sexual pleasure and stop resisting people like me all the time, you'd be so much better off. It's offensive to us today, and it was at the time, too. Napoleon received the two books and ordered Saad's arrest. Also written that decade in 1795 was the dramatic dialogue called The Philosophy in the Boudoir, or published as Philosophy in the Bedroom in English. This is Saad's plea to the revolutionaries, telling them that they need to be less moral and more free. The way to enlightenment, enlightenment is through libertinism, he argues. Within the book, a character reads a pamphlet with the title, Frenchmen, some more effort if you wish to become Republicans. You've gotten rid of the monarchy, Saad is saying. Now it's time to get rid of religion too. Then you will be truly liberated. That brings us to the fourth book, the one that truly goes as far as Saad could take it. This book was banned all over the place for decades, over a century. Saad wrote it from the Bastille on a secret manuscript he squirreled away in the walls. He was in a kind of frenzy, and he wrote it in a kind of frenzy, and the manuscript took on a demonic glow that has lasted for more than 200 years. And we will have that whole story in our next episode. One last word on Saad, and this is just a casual reader's impression, my impression. Not a philosopher, not a scholar, no particular axe to grind. But one of the other things that comes out when you read Saad, in addition to the lack of consent and the unrelenting desire to inflict pain and to have the freedom to inflict pain, is Saad the author's desire to control. This is all connected, of course, and Saad would probably say, well, if, they, if the victims consent, fine, but true liberty wouldn't wait for that. If I'm to be truly free, I wouldn't have to wait for their consent, and, and true control maybe doesn't wait for it either. Saad wanted control, and in real life that wound up putting him in jail, which he deserved. But in the novels, it comes across as a novelistic flaw. You suspect that the characters are there to serve Saad's ends, to arouse him and to indulge his whims. You feel, as a reader, that he's writing them into existence because he takes pleasure in making them do his bidding, in controlling them, in forcing them to bend to his authorial will. He wrote to express himself, to argue for certain political positions, to shock a nation that he felt needed to be shocked out of its piety. But I think a big part of him just wanted to end this messy reality of people in real life who objected and complained and resisted and fled, who went to the police and got them to chase after Saad, who yelled and who showed up with a gun, or who just weren't as into it as Saad wanted them to be. So much easier to create a novel where the resistance is futile and harmless to the author. So much better than living behind bars or in exile. The characters might resist their torturers, but they don't resist the author because they can't. The only ones left to resist are the readers. 
but Saad didn't need to worry about our cries either. We submit to him or we don't, but in the end, Saad gets to be in charge. The man who was so often out of control in thought and deed gets to play a different role in his books. There, he's in control like a god, and nobody can stop him. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Must we burn Sod? Well, no, but must we read Sod? Eh, <laughs> we don't have to do that either. Must we consider Sod? Well, why not? That doesn't hurt anything. It's interesting to talk about these issues. Okay, we'll be back next time with the notorious manuscript, The 120 Days of Sodom. That will be a lighter episode than this one was. That is a great story, and we have a great guest who's going to walk us through the ins and outs of how this manuscript became so notorious, from its content to the circumstances surrounding it. I hope you'll join me for that episode. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.